0: listeners, welcome to the NK News Podcast, recorded here in Seoul on Wednesday, May 15th, 2019. My very special in-studio guest today, Bruce Klingner, specializes in Korean and Japanese affairs as the Senior Research Fellow for Northeast Asia at the Heritage Foundation's Asian Studies Center. Prior to that, Bruce had 20 years of service at the Central Intelligence Agency and the Defense Intelligence Agency. He has written and spoken publicly about North Korea, South Korea and Japan, as well as related issues particularly focusing on arms control and missile defense. He can often be seen speaking uh, in Korea here at uh, conferences, also uh, in the United States on Fox News, and in writing at the Daily Signal and the National Interest.
1: Thanks for your time and welcome, Bruce. Well, thanks for having me. A pleasure to be here for the first time.
0: Can I get you to tell our listeners a little bit about the Heritage Foundation? What is it? Who funds it? And what does it seek to do?
1: Well, we're an independent research organization, often called a think tank in Washington. So other Large ones are the Brookings Institution or Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. And there are a number of other uh, think tanks in Washington. So each one is a bit different. Uh, we focus on trying to influence policy. So you know we do what I call finger-wagging analysis. If mm-hmm. you shake your finger and say the U.S. should do this, the U.S. should do that. So we tend to write shorter articles than other think tanks. We don't write books. We don't write 80-page task force reports because policymakers or their staffers don't have time to read that. So in a way, very similar to what we did in the intelligence community, you're trying to bring information to the policymakers to enable them to make the best informed decision they can.
0: Yeah, you make a a good point. Actually, I, I tried to, but couldn't find any research reports or studies published by Heritage, and now I know why. Uh, and yet your your title is senior research fellow so is it is it fair to say that the public output of heritage is mainly policy suggestions and commentary in the short form
1: right so The Heritage has two main publications. One is we call an issue brief. Uh, It's 1,200 words, so about two or three pages. uh, And our quote-unquote long research paper would be about 5,000 words or or 10 pages. And all of them have to have policy recommendations at the end. If if you can't come up with policy recommendations, then you write it as an outside article or or an op-ed. So uh, we often have it sort of in bullet format of, you know, organized by you know, category or things that the U.S. or trying to get our allies uh, to do.
0: Would it be fair also to say that uh, Heritage is a uh, conservative organization that hues a little bit more closely to the Republican policy line than that of the Democrats?
1: Well, we do say we are conservative. Uh, you know, for example, the Brookings Institution, which was actually my first job out of college. I was ah. there for a year and a half. Uh, it's, it's liberal or left of center, but, you know, they say they aren't. Uh, we say we're conservative, but that doesn't mean aligned with uh, the Republican Party. So in the 13 years I've been there in my little lane in the road of Northeast Asia, uh, I've praised and criticized Presidents Bush, Obama and Trump, depending on what I think of their policies.
0: OK, well, that sounds fair enough. Um, so there's a lot of think tanks, as you mentioned, a lot of. Uh Lobbyists trying to put their views forward in DC uh, and it's quite a spectrum of views. So where does the Heritage Foundation position itself? Is it generally hawkish or where does it stand on, for example, the calls for a preemptive strike or a bloody nose back in late 2017?
1: Well, I was very much against that. And in fact, I wrote a a, a joint op-ed with my counterparts at CSIS and Brookings, uh, Sue Terry and Jung Pak, who are also former CIA. So the three of us wrote an op-ed arguing against a preventive attack. We didn't think that was a good idea. I also wrote another op-ed in the Los Angeles Times arguing against it. So, you know, in that we were very much critical of uh, the Trump administration. When Mm -hmm. I was here in Seoul, I had South Korean officials who expressed, you know, great uh, gratitude for the article, particularly the one where we had three large think tanks in Washington arguing against it.
0: Mm. And, and you feel that those voices were heard, ultimately? I, I,
1: I think so. Certainly, Seoul heard it. Uh, and we had, I think, a groundswell of, of people arguing against doing such an attack. Because, you know, the US has, has long had either a, a reactive attack or a preemptive attack if you have good intelligence that your opponent is about to attack you with nuclear weapons. Those reactive or preemptive attacks have long been options in U.S. strategy. Uh, But a preventive attack was something that uh, was unique to the Trump administration, and we thought it was not a good idea.
0: Overall, how do you feel President Trump and his administration is doing when it comes to uh, North Korea policy?
1: I've been fairly critical. Uh, I think a number of things he's doing is not what we have recommended which surprises people. They think that since, you know, we're a conservative think tank and and more closely aligned with Republican views and Democrat, that we'd automatically uh, be supportive of anything a Republican president does. I've actually been arguing against uh, President Trump's policies, not only on preventive attack, but on uh, his approach to our allies. I think he has a more of a transactional view of alliances rather than based on the more traditional American view of uh, that these are relationships built on shared objectives, shared values. And in the case of the Republic of Korea, you know, uh, forged in blood and and that we've stood on the ramparts of freedom for 70 years to deter and defend and, if necessary, defeat another North Korean attack. So Mm. uh, I think the Trump administration's approach, for example, on the special measures agreement negotiations with South Korea was not correct. Uh, And also, I think uh, recently we've seen a reluctance to criticize North Korea for its human rights. The president gave three, I thought, very strong and very eloquent and very moving speeches criticizing the North Korea regime for its crimes against humanity and just really the way it, it treats its own citizens. And then, since Singapore, we've seen a reluctance by the president to criticize uh, Kim Jong Un or the North Korean regime. you know, going so far as to say they're in love with each other. Mm. And he's a he loves his people, et cetera. Uh, and then also there has been a reluctance to fully enforce U.S. law uh, with our targeted financial measures or sanctions since Singapore.
0: Is there a time? I mean, I know we're, we're only what uh, less than two, uh, three years into um, Donald Trump's presidency. Is there a time? In the last couple of years, in which you felt Trump's policy towards North Korea was at its best, and
1: it's not always been consistent. Consistency is something that uh, our allies sort of count on. You know, if you swerve from kind of one extreme to the other, you know, many supporters of the president point to this being the disruptor in chief or uh, being unpredictable as a positive. Well, it it I don't think it's a positive when it comes to our allies. Uh, they they count on the U.S. being supportive of alliances rather than being highly critical of them. And also, if you veer from one extreme to the other, it's sort of hard to have a a coherent plan. Uh, For example, when the president uh, unilaterally announced after the Singapore summit that he was canceling military exercises, he did that without consulting or notifying the Secretary of Defense, the Department of Defense, uh, U.S. Forces Korea, or our allies, uh, Republic of Korea, or Japan. So it's a bit hard to have a coordinated policy when things are so unpredictable. I, I think the, to his credit, the president walked away from what looked like it would have been a bad deal in Hanoi. I think all the the indications were that he was going to sign what whatever you want to call it, a small deal or a partial deal that I think would have been a, not a good deal. And so... The the comments by senior officials, by the president seemed to indicate he was going down that path. Mm. So I was surprised that he walked away from the deal. Um, And I think that was a good thing. It was a tactical good decision. But strategically, we're no closer to achieving the objectives of North Korean denuclearization than we were at the beginning of this or indeed other administrations.
0: I'd like to ask you about uh, the current national security advisor, John Bolton. He seems to be, uh, at least from my perspective, quite hardline on pushing U.S. interests globally and doesn't seem to shy away from suggesting uh, kinetic activity against states that go against U.S. interests. Uh, before assuming his uh, current position in the, in the White House, he argued, f- for example, in favor of the preemptive strikes that you're against uh, and even going so far as to say we should end the uh, North Korean regime. So do you know if he's still advocating such things to President Trump at the moment?
1: well i think you know the president will get differing uh, recommendations from different officials and as he will point out he's the decider. So uh, oftentimes it's hard to predict sort of which lane in the road or which advice he'll, he'll take. I think there are areas where I would disagree with Mr. Bolton and others where I, I think I would agree. Because of perhaps his personality, he, he's become a caricature and, and people will often sort of depict him in certain ways. So for example, with the, the Hanoi Summit in mm. you know, the big deal Uh, People often depict that as sort of outrageously big, overly big. Um, But in fact, the big deal is what North Korea is required to do under 11 UN resolutions, which is unilaterally abandon its nuclear missile and biological and chemical warfare programs under a complete, verifiable, irreversible manner. Uh, and there's no mention of compensation for that. Uh, And also, it's what North Korea agreed to do in eight previous agreements, all of which failed.
0: If you were uh, Kim Jong-un or one of his advisors, would you be unilaterally giving up uh, nuclear weapons uh, capabilities in North Korea?
1: Well, uh, certainly what they are required to do by the international community. So if you're going to not do it, then you realize you are in defiance of uh, UN resolutions. And often he's acting in a way that's uh, in violation of US law and international law. So he would have to know that there are consequences to that. So I believe if UN resolutions and laws are to mean anything, then those who violate them have to be punished. Uh, you don't negotiate with bank robbers to stop ban- robbing banks. You don't negotiate with murderers to stop uh, you know, committing crimes. So money laundering and other felony crimes are not things that you, you accept just because it's Part of diplomacy.
0: But short of an all out invasion, I mean, uh, isn't negotiation exactly what we must do when uh, somebody is uh, doing the wrong thing?
1: Well, I'd say diplomacy is not a, an objective in itself, it's a tool. Uh, It's an instrument in national power that you use along with all the other instruments in national power, diplomatic, informational, military, economic, in a comprehensive integrated strategy. So you're trying to achieve a number of objectives, not just altering North Korean behavior. Uh, Too often, I think, in Washington or, or elsewhere... The, the debate kind of devolves to this binary choice of diplomacy or sanctions, diplomacy versus sanctions. And no matter how often you try to encapsulate it in a, a broader strategy, kind of the argument just gets down to oh, you want sanctions, therefore you don't want diplomacy or vice versa. You know, sanctions or targeted financial measures, uh, I think, are often misunderstood. There are differences between the U.N. and the U.S. sanctions. The U.S. laws, you know, are harder to undo than U.N. resolution sanctions. Uh, They require uh, actions by Congress. Or uh, to even suspend sanctions for one year, the president under Sections 401 and 402 of the North Korea Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act has to certify North Korea has taken a number of very significant steps, including on human rights. So, you know, I I think engagement is something we should always try. I always disagreed with particularly conservatives who would say, don't meet with North Korea, don't negotiate with them. It's a victory for them. And that's why we have a a State Department is to talk to people you don't necessarily want to bring home to your family. So Mm. I think you always have to have the door open uh, for negotiations or discussions What's been an unfortunate, not only now, but over the years, has been it's been North Korea that's been reluctant to talk. So right now they're refusing to meet with not only Steve Beegan, the special envoy, uh, but South Korea. Uh, and before, if you talk to previous special envoys, Danny Russell and, and Song Kim and Chris Hill, they would all say, yeah, they were trying to get meetings with North Koreans, uh, but they were often rejected by Pyongyang.
0: What do you say to the argument that, uh, that Kim Jong-un's really only uh, uh, leverage is uh, having nuclear weapons and the only security guarantee he has that he, he won't be toppled or overthrown or uh, invaded.
1: Well, it, he uh, certainly was never invaded or attacked by the South or the U.S. prior to having nuclear weapons. So when he says the treasured sword of nuclear weapons is only in response to a U.S. or South Korean hostile policy, well, I think if you look at you know which Korea has attacked the other more frequently since 1950... Uh, Which one has committed acts of war, which one has committed acts of terror, uh, cyber attacks, etc., trying to assassinate the the opposing Korea's leader? Well, all the chits uh, end up on North Korea's side. So really, it's the North Korean hostile policy. That should be on the table during negotiations. You know, people can can point to, well, if, you know, North Korea only has nuclear weapons to to keep it safe. Well, it it wasn't attacked in the many many decades before it had nuclear weapons. All
0: right, let's do a bit of history on the uh, on the North Korean nuclear program. In '93, and '94, you were the chief of the CIA's Korea branch, which analyzed military developments during the first nuclear crisis with North Korea. In that first crisis, what was done well and what was done badly from the perspective of seeking to dissuade North Korea from pursuing the nuclear weapon?
1: Well, as an intelligence officer, I was just you know, providing information or, or analytic assessments to the policymakers. So our role was is never to make policy recommendations. So the way I describe the intelligence and the policymaking communities are they're sort of like two villages on a, on very high cliffs uh, that are separated by a deep chasm, and there's just sort of a rickety bridge between the two. So just as policymakers are not supposed to be influencing the, the analytic assessments, uh, assessments of the intelligence community. The intelligence community is not supposed to be making comments or recommendations on U.S. policy. So during the, the 93, 94 time, I was moved over to take over the Korea branch because it looked like we might be going to war. Mm. Uh, so I sort of had to fix the branch uh, to, to make sure we were, we were prepared. Uh, at that time, we had the sort of the nuclear crisis and then Jimmy Carter's unilateral decision to go and negotiate on behalf of the United States. And then the subsequent... Uh, agreed framework negotiations. So uh, it was a pretty tense time. We wondered uh, if we were going to be having armed conflict. But in many ways, I thought we were closer to a conflict in 2017 than we were in 93 or 94.
0: In hindsight, how do you feel about President Jimmy Carter's visit to uh, Pyongyang to meet with Kim Il-sung?
1: Well, I think it's not the role of a private citizen, even a former president, to be negotiating on behalf of the government. Um, it was not part of a, a plan by the Clinton administration. Uh, as Clinton administration officials will tell you, they were you know, working on sort of uh, reinforcement options when they looked up from their desks and saw uh, Jimmy Carter doing a live TV interview from Pyongyang, and they found out, oh, this is what he, what he negotiated on the country's behalf. Uh, so it was not part of a, a, a plan. The the subsequent agreed framework, um, you know, I, I'm of two minds of it. Um, I think it was never as good as its proponents said it was, and it was never as bad as its critics said it was. You know, it did uh, cap the problem at the, uh, one facility you know, the important facility at Yongbyon. But it created a separate category in the non-proliferation treaty and IEA safeguards only for North Korea. It, It allowed them to defer required inspections for a number of years. It set a precedent of kind of exceptionalism for North Korea for other laws and other UN resolutions. So, you know, certainly it's better to not have a larger arsenal that they would have had, had the 50 megawatt and 200 megawatt reactor been online. Um, but it didn't, as its policymaker proponents said at the time, it didn't solve the North Korean nuclear problem. And then
0: uh, le- the second, um, I think some people call the second nuclear crisis, was precipitated by uh, James Kelly's visit to Pyongyang in October 2002 when the uh, highly enriched uranium issue was brought up. What went wrong there?
1: Well, I'd say what went wrong is North Korea was violating the agreed framework, the non-proliferation treaty, the North-South Korean uh, non-nuclear agreement, um, you know, and the IEA safeguards. So-
0: but is there actually evidence that they were doing it at the time, or did they say, we can do this if we want to? I'm not, it's not clear to me what exactly was what they were confessing to.
1: Yeah. Well, sort of regardless of what they confessed to, they were in violation of the agreed framework the day that they signed the agreed framework. The highly enriched uranium program goes back to the early 90s or late 1980s. Uh, They were already working on centrifuges at that time. So- A lot of controversy arose over what the North Koreans said or didn't say in that meeting. Uh, I've talked to three of the Americans who were uh, the policymakers who were on that trip, as well as the translator. All of them were very clear and 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 in their minds that North Korea had said they they were pursuing an Hmm. HEU program. That's immaterial in a way because the evidence was there. You know, the evidence wasn't something that just came all at once. It was there. Were there were suspicions, uh, or, or hints of it over the years. And, and with, you know, intelligence work, it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. It's, you don't have all the pieces. You have to try to make assessments based on just a few, few pieces. Uh, and your opponent is often in essence, trying to have disinformation by throwing pieces from other puzzles into the box you're trying Mm -hmm. to figure out. So the officials said that during that summer, that new evidence came in, that made it you know, unambiguously clear that North Korea was pursuing uh, an HEU program. So some tried to dismiss it as, well, it's not a program, it's a program to develop a program, but that's like saying a conspiracy to commit a, a crime is not a crime. Well, the conspiracy itself is a crime.
0: So uh, my understanding of, of, of a big deal, if one were to be signed at some stage, it would be to include not only younger not only plutonium but also uh, HEU is that correct
1: right well i think the parameters of it are still very much up in the air and you know a, a big deal and a implementation by you know components you know is not mutually exclusive you can have a an agreement that sets the sort of the fence lines around the issue and then it's implemented you know by component or or sequentially so it's not necessarily true that a big deal requires everything to be done at once right. or that uh, North Korea gives us everything before they get anything. So, so
0: coming back to the uh, the John Bolton solution, we'll send a ship to your port, you put everything on, we'll take it away. Uh, that's probably not
1: realistic. Right. You know, and, and Steve Began, the special envoy, when he gave a speech uh, in January. Oh, the one at, at Stanford? Exactly. Mm. And then some su- subsequent presentations by him, you know, said that we get everything before they get anything, you know, is not the correct depiction. So, I, th- I think it's still very much unclear what the, the proponents of the policy are, are advocating. But, you know, what I would say is that what we need to have is more of a, uh, an agreement that looks like the arms control treaties we had with the Soviet Union rather than the very vague and short agreements we've had in the past with, you know, with North Korea. So, I was chief of the arms control staff at the agency. I served on one of the negotiating delegations in Europe uh, with the Warsaw Pact. And so I think what we need to have is clear definitions, you know, clearly defined parameters of what is included or not included in the, the agreement. You need to have clearly agreed upon and identified steps along the way of, of incremental implementation. And you also have to have sufficient verification and destruction protocols so that it's carried out in a way where you have you know, less potential for accusations of cheating.
0: Who would you like to see doing the verification?
1: I think, you know, it's a combination of IEEA and maybe the P5 nations or the UN Security Council or, or maybe a new US or international organization. Um, the IAEA, people have said, is not necessarily set up well for mm-hmm. fissile material. So, what I think that might be is perhaps something by the the P5 nations, the mm-hmm. permanent five of the UN Security Council, because there are non nuclear members of the IAEA. You perhaps don't want to have non nuclear inspectors uh, with nuclear weapons or fissile material. So, I think it may be a bit of a hybrid implementation, but. Uh, we haven't, you know, nearly got that far in in discussions on verification, and indeed, North Korea walked away from the agreed framework in 2008 over disputes over verification. Mm. So, can I take from your
0: uh, your earlier answer that you're not opposed to a step by step phased approach?
1: Right, I I think you know there. I'd say, uh, well, there are a number of disagreements uh, amongst Korea watchers, but you <laughs> know, one of them is sort of the uh, what a previous U.S. negotiator said is sort of a you know a series of small uh, agreements mm. in order to induce the turtle's head out of the shell. I, I'm more in favor of a an arms control treaty. Again, I'm very much influenced by my time working arms control. But I think if you don't have an agreed uh, endpoint, then you're not likely to get there. As, as someone might say, if you don't know where you're going, you're not likely to get there. Mm. Um, I think you need to very early on define what denuclearization is, what the Korean peninsula is, and we know that North Korea has two very different definitions on those items than we do. They, they think the Korean peninsula includes Guam and Japan and uh, U.S. carriers and submarines and, and perhaps even Hawaii as part of the Korean peninsula. Anything that influences or impacts the Korean peninsula is considered part of it. We see it as the small rabbit-shaped you know, peninsula in Northeast Asia. Uh, And also denuclearization, we see it as, well, what the UN defines it as is the abandonment of its programs. North Korea sees it as global arms control. And that they will go to zero when the other members of the nuclear mm-hmm. club go to zero.
0: Club zero. Well, we have this story from the Hanoi Summit that uh, somebody, I can't remember who it was, on the Trump administration side, handed a piece of paper to somebody on the North Korean side with a definition of uh, denuclearization as uh, the UN and the U.S. see it uh, in both English and Korean. Are you familiar with that, uh, that story?
1: Yeah. Uh, did that happen, as far as we know? Yes, I, I think it did. Who and gave it to whom? I don't know the specific official who gave it. You know whether it was Trump to Kim or mm-hmm. or someone else. But uh, you know, it was trying to move beyond what had been an impasse. Where, mm-hmm. and and I think because North Korea has a very different definition, it's led to confusion by a number of people, including in the the Trump White House. Uh, in March of I guess it was 2017, when a South Korean delegation came and and met with the president and said, yeah, Kim agreed to denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula. Well, I think the White House at the time thought, this is amazing. This has never been promised before. We'll back up the plane, they'll load on the nukes and we'll fly away. Any Korea watcher would know that, no, that's not what they've been telling us over the years. It's a very different definition. So that then in May, uh, when I think it was Kim Gaeguan and some other North Korean officials kind of publicly articulated what their definition was, uh, the White House felt betrayed. They mm. felt that Kim had walked back the agreement. And even more recently, we have people saying that you know they, they've walked back what they previously agreed to. Uh, and we've seen Secretary Pompeo and President Moon repeatedly saying, as Chairman Kim has agreed to, well, I, I think they're either inflating what North Korea agreed to or they're misinterpreting the, the differing definitions.
0: Mm. Now, a uh, very different topic here, but certainly one related to your experience as a, a former intelligence analyst. I want to hear your take on the Madrid caper, uh, the raid on the DPRK embassy in Spain. I think that happened in uh, in February this year, uh, quite a bit of time before the, the Hanoi uh, summit. Uh, what's your feeling of it?
1: Well, you know, the, especially the reporting that initially said it was, you know, CIA was involved, you know, certainly is very sexy. It's It gets the headlines. You know, I mean, as a little old analyst. Certainly, that was never part of my job description. But if you think about it, any kind of covert action by uh, a component of the U.S. government requires what's called a presidential finding. By U.S. law, the president has to sign a document in which the president finds in the in the interests of U.S. national security, a U.S. government needs to do some kind of covert action. So, they call it a finding. So, what that either would have required the president on the eve of the very important Hanoi summit signing a document to authorize mm. CIA or other operatives to go into a foreign embassy you know take you know charge through coercion or or force uh, you know clearly risking the Hanoi summit which is very important to the president It doesn't seem very likely or it was a CIA rogue operation uh, where CIA operatives knowing that they were risking undermining a presidential summit, uh, went in on their own initiative into a foreign embassy in broad daylight. Again, not a very likely scenario. So I don't think the agency was involved.
0: The reporting that I'm seeing now is it, it seems more likely that uh, rather than the agency being involved directly, uh, that somebody from the agency consulted with or uh, liaised with the uh, uh, the attackers before the raid.
1: Well, I, again, I don't think that is viable because it would have been sort of planning for an, uh, an armed assault mm-hmm. on a foreign embassy, uh, you know, of a country that we were in, in high-level negotiations with. Um, you know, I, I don't know what U.S. officials did or didn't meet with any of the people from, the, from that group. You know, over time, someone may have met with them, uh, you know, at their request of, you know, seeking information or on a totally unrelated, you know, issue. But that doesn't mean the U.S. government was involved Mm. in in planning or authorizing, uh, you know, an armed assault.
0: But yeah, as a a watcher of the Korean Peninsula, it's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? I mean, you know, uh, in the last 50 years, I can't think of an instance where a North Korean consular office was attacked from outside. And here we have one where it seems, you know, not only were they uh, infiltrated and attacked, but, you know, the... uh, diplomats were tied up and, and maybe even uh, treated roughly.
1: Right. It, it, it's certainly uh, a very brazen attack. Um, we don't know the details of it except from the North Korean side. Mm. And and North Korea is not always known for its veracity. So I think it it's going to be the subject of, of U.S. court cases where However, North Korea presents its view, and then the uh, the people that have been arrested or indicted will present their view. So it'll go through the U.S. court system. It'll, whatever the court ruling is, if, it, if they decide to extradite the people to Spain, mm-hmm. I think it would have to be done on the condition that in no way the people end up being extradited to North Korea, because we would know, given North Korea's lax view of of the legal um, norms of international behavior, what would happen to them.
0: As a a frequent critic of the DPRK, do you feel that consular offices uh, are fair game for physical attack or should they be left uh, for
1: diplomatic immunity? I, I think, you know, we should all abide by the Geneva Convention where embassies and consulates are, you know, inviolate. I mean, just as the U.S. embassy in Tehran was uh, was overrun and attacked, and uh, our diplomats held hostage for 444 days. It's, it's a violation of international agreements and norms of behavior. So, you know, we shouldn't do the same to other countries unless they're engaged in illegal behavior. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you don't burst into their embassy. But if they're outside of the embassy, you can... Uh, arrest them for illegal behavior and we've mm. we've known a number of North Korean diplomats have been engaged in smuggling or counterfeiting or uh, money laundering et cetera so you can Either uh, declare them persona non grata and have them, uh, you know, depart the country of the of the host nation, mm-hmm. uh, or arrested or whatever the you know. But I, I'm a firm believer in the legal system, so you, yeah. you follow the rules. Uh,
0: now uh, let's go to uh, an article you wrote in December last year, sort of just the day after Christmas. You wrote my North Korea prediction for 2019. <laughs> so let's see how we're doing. We're almost almost halfway through the year. Uh, you wrote if Pyongyang were to engage in blatantly bad faith behavior such as a nuclear test, missile flight, or openly declaring an end to negotiations, the United States would be faced with a clear policy decision point of preventive attack, more pressure, or maintaining a long-term containment policy. Now, uh, you've already said that you're you're against preventive attack. Uh, we do know that North Korea in the last week has done um, a number of well, are they missiles? Are they projectiles, There's a bit of both. They've done some flights, the first for 18 months. How is the, react- the US reacting so far? And are you happy with the uh, response?
1: Well, I think what I was trying to do there was sort of pointing out that, you know, if North Korea did something, you know, very distinct in sort of slamming the, the door shut on diplomacy, then the US had a very clear decision point. And as I pointed out, sort of those were three options that, the administration might choose amongst perhaps what didn't make it into that article was you know sort of if you have this continuing sort of bumping along on diplomacy not solving it but not sort of slamming the door shut, then in a way, it's like an accordion where Mm. it can stretch and stretch and stretch. And as long as you feel like perhaps you're in negotiations and every once in a while, if you have a meeting, no matter how unsatisfactory, it's like the accordion gets longer and longer and longer where each day isn't necessarily terribly worse than the day before. So you don't have a, a clear decision point. You don't say, well, on three months and one day of uh, unsatisfactory negotiations, we're going to hit that decision point. So you can muddle along for quite some time. And, and the whole time, North Korea is continuing to expand and refine its its arsenals. You know, if you have North Korea do something, then it's like the accordion slam shut and mm-hmm. then you have that decision point. With uh, the North Korean missiles that were fired – it's if you look at what's become kind of a, a hierarchy of international responses to North Korean violations, the UN and others, you know, will respond very strongly to nuclear weapons. We'll get resolutions, we'll get more sanctions, we'll get, uh, you know, stronger measures. An ICBM test sort of is right below that. It, it often gets resolutions and additional measures. An intermediate range missile uh, will get a sort of strong verbal response, but not necessarily resolutions and and additional sanctions. Medium range, short range missiles, uh, North Korea exporting conventional arms, which is also a violation. Those have never really elicited strong international response. Hmm. So when some have said, well, the U.S. and South Korea haven't responded strongly to these three missile launches – uh, why is that? Is, why is it different? Is it because of the diplomacy, the summits, et cetera? And I think it's really it's, – we never really reacted strongly to, to SRBMs. So now if, if Kim feels he isn't getting the, the response he wants of the U.S. rushing back to the table and lowering the bar, hmm. will he do something more? Will he try to either verbally sort of ratchet up the pressure, the stronger words, you know, less vague threats – uh, or will he do a medium-range test or a rocket engine test? Uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. Uh,
0: you also predicted in the same article strains with allies South Korea will also increase as President Moon continues his advocacy advocacy for benefits, including sanctions reduction for Pyongyang, even before meaningful denuclearization steps. So, how's that going? How is the uh, chorus alliance relationship?
1: Well, I, I think it was you know very strained during the the SMA agreement or uh, negotiations, and luckily the White House backed off what it had been.
0: Ah, the special measures. This right. is the for those listeners who may not be familiar with the money that South Korea contributes to the joint uh, defense sharing costs of South Korea of having U.S. troops stationed here. Have I more or less summarized that right?
1: Right, and I think if you if you look back to say November of last year, I remember meeting with U.S. officials who were expressing you know privately very strong. Uh, criticism of of the Moon administration and its approach to the North, and then when I'd meet with South Korean officials, they'd say, "We you know we, we know not of which you speak this <laughs> this disagreement." You know we're shoulder to shoulder, everyone's happy, and I said, "Well, not so much." Uh, I, I also relayed the message that the the disagreement was going to get so strong that it was, you know, going to be more difficult to keep it behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. Well, eventually we saw it come out from behind the curtain. Secretary Pompeo and others have, you know, expressed criticism. Uh, the U.S. government has directly contacted South Korean government agencies, banks, and companies to sort of remind them of the need to obey the law lest they face consequences. So, you know, I think, you know, there's a difference between what's in front of the curtain and what's behind the curtain. So, Um, You know, I think the the U.S. feels that President Moon is trying to go too far too fast. But President Moon really is constrained in what he can do. Unlike his Mm. progressive predecessors, he can't catapult bags of cash north of the DMZ anymore because anything he does economically with the north would basically be a violation. So I think he, he feels he's in a box because he can't do what he wants, which is you know, offering economic benefits to, uh, in his mind, you know, improve in, uh, inter-Korean relations, which would then eventually lead to North Korea abiding by the international re- resolutions.
0: We uh, we sometimes get the feeling here in Seoul, those of us that live here, that there seems to be a, a lack of awareness in uh, inside the beltway. I think you call it that of uh, South Korea's own interests and policies and how they may or may not always align with those of the US.
1: Well c- certainly, you know, our allies have different views on different issues and so, you know, alliances are sometimes a pretty difficult relationship to to try to manage. I mean, just think of a marriage. You don't always are perfectly aligned with your spouse, you often have differing objectives and sometimes contradictory. So sometimes it's it's more difficult, uh, you know, at a certain time or with a certain ally. Um, so we've seen that over the years, the the South Korean view of U.S. forces stationed here or the, the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement negotiations. Um, so there, you know, in Seoul, there's often a perception of kind of the big bad U.S. twisting the arm of, of little South Korea and we're trying to intimidate. Um, and the U.S. is, you know, sometimes a bit heavy handed in its approach. So it is balancing sometimes contradictory objectives and trying to maintain the relationship. So, you know, I think what we've seen recently is uh, South Korea, you know, has wants to return to the sunshine policy uh, view of, you know, offering benefits in order to induce better behavior by the North or induce political and economic reform. Uh, the U.S. Is, is, you know, more Leaning toward the sanction route of having North Korea behave itself in order to then earn benefits, and and again on the the burden sharing or the special measures agreement negotiation, you know the president seemed to be advocating a cost plus fifty percent or uh, a significant you know fifty percent hundred percent increase in South Korea's contribution. Mm-hmm. Um, and South Korean officials said, "Look, we you know we're willing to incrementally increase the the contribution, but." We can't accept this massive increase. And I think uh, from the U.S. side, what many U.S. policymakers, including the president, didn't realize is, well, first of all, the nature of of an alliance, that it's not a money-making operation or a a cost-even relationship. Uh, But also the many contributions South Korea makes, the 93% of the $10 billion cost of moving the Mm -hmm. army units from Yongsan down to Pyeongtaek, South Korea paid. Uh, and as the U.S. Pacific Command said several years ago, uh, of the $39 billion in the U.S. military construction budget for the Pacific, South Korea and Japan was paying $32 billion of the $39 wow. billion. I mean, it's an incredible figure for it which is. our allies aren't really getting credit in these SMA negotiations. So I think there has to be an awareness really on both sides of – the the reason for the alliance and the benefits that each ally is providing to the other, not necessarily captured in cost. Do
0: you think more needs to be done to uh, I don't know increase communication between the different players in Washington and, and
1: Seoul? Well, there's a I think a pretty vigorous coordination. I mean, they've even created new working groups to sort of try to reduce the potential for surprises uh, on North Korea policy as well as uh, SMA. Both Washington and Seoul were making announcements about North Korea policy that surprised the other, mm-hmm. and, and that's not good. So, you know, both Washington and Seoul need to coordinate on such an important policy and and not surprise them. Like, from, you know, the president announcing cancellation of military exercises uh, without telling our ally. That's not good. Just as North Korea or I'm sorry South Korea making announcements about policy or initiatives with the north without coordinating with the US is also not good. So I think they put in place new working groups to try to, you know, reduce the friction by reducing the potential for surprises.
0: As a think tank, does the Heritage Foundation liaise or work closely with any South Korean think tank or institution?
1: Yeah, we sort of individually. I get invited to a number of conferences in in South Korea, so we. You're here for one right now, aren't you? Right. the The Washington Times uh, is organizing a conference here. This is my third trip to Korea this year. I was here six times last year, so. Sort of on an individual basis, if uh, a think tank or a newspaper, or whoever, you know, invites me, I often come here to, to provide my view or the Heritage Foundation's view. Uh, we may have, you know, joint conferences that we do either in Washington or in Seoul uh, with a think tank Um You know, or a research organization, uh, you know, on you know common themes of the alliance or or North Korea policy.
0: How do you see the rest of 2019 playing out? Will there be a third Trump Kim summit, for example?
1: Well, pretty much anything with the Trump administration (laughs) policy right now is pretty hard to predict. Um, Right now, the the message from the administration is that they don't want to have a summit until there is a greater likelihood of actual progress, Mm. which would have to be done at the working level, and that's what. Many of us had argued even before a first summit should have happened. Uh, But then again, last December, Mr. Bolton said it's the very lack of progress since the Singapore summit – which affirmed in the president's mind the need to have a, a second summit.
0: The top-down view of diplomacy rather than a working level up. E-
1: exactly. And, right. and so far, the top-down approach hasn't been any more successful than the bottom-up. We're still hopeful, but you know, so far, the, the claims that being disruptive or doing things from the top-down will lead to a breakthrough ha- hasn't materialized. I, I think right now we're in a bit of a holding pattern. Both sides see the ball is in the other's court. Uh, the U.S. has seen uh, North Korea needs to kind of absorb what we would see the lessons of Hanoi were and needs to come back uh, with a, a more viable beginning proposal uh, to have not only a third summit, but also viable negotiations. North Korea has indicated they see the, the blame for Hanoi is in you know, on Washington, Mr. Bolton, Mr. Pompeo particularly. Uh, and Kim Jong-un and others have said, you know, our patience will run out at the end of the year at which point we may do something stronger yet undefined right now it's kind of we're just going to be stumbling along each side looking to the other to, to come back to the table first but then you know what happens if north korea feels it's either being ignored or it's not getting what it, it wants will they raise the the pressure raise the you know levels of provocation the president has indicated he's happy as long as they are not Testing, And I think by that, he meant ICBMs or, or nuclear weapons, things that would be seen as a direct threat to the American homeland. So if they do an MRBM, you know, the president may overlook that as well. Mm. Uh, you know, if they go down the ICBM or the nuclear test route, then things get very tense and very unpredictable whether we're back to the 2017 level of tension and some advocating preventive attack or not right now is' hard to hard to see but you know I, I think the next couple of months will be relatively quiet and we'll just in a way see what North Korea is going to do
0: if there is a, a third uh, Trump Kim summit, um, and assuming that you will continue your, uh, uh, as you put it, uh, finger-wagging policy analysis and recommendations, what would you be advocating from the sidelines?
1: Well, what I would advocate is that we we get a, a carefully crafted agreement. So it has to be comprehensive. It has to be very detailed. We can't rely on these, these short, vague, ambiguous documents we've always had in the mm. past with North Korea. So again applying the lessons of arms control treaties it's got to have you know clearly defined definitions we all know what we're talking about we need to have clearly defined uh, requirements by all parties, and then the negotiations are how many from column A do you get before you get any from column B, or you know what, what's the combination. Also, you'd need to define timelines, and uh, as you implement these, and it, it's you can't physically do it all at once, mm. so you're going to have to implement it incrementally. You're going to have to have a robust verification, and that will be a data declaration and then baseline inspections of the declared facilities and programs. And then you're going to have to have a quota of what's called challenge inspections of non-declared facilities. It doesn't have to be a large number, but you need to be able to go to suspect uh, facilities, which may or may not be in violation of the agreement. Um, So you need to have really a carefully crafted uh, agreement before you have have an agreement. On on a separate issue, a peace declaration or end of war declaration Mm. that both Pyongyang and Seoul have been advocating, Um, I I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's, you know, as South Korean officials who advocate it will say it's political, it's symbolic, it's not really having any effect on the real world, why not sign it? And I I respond well for that very reason. You know, when I ask what is your strategic objective that you're trying to achieve, what will you get specifically as a quid pro quo from North Korea? If it's to make them feel less threatened and, oh, by the way, who's attacked more since 1950, how will they act differently if they feel less threatened? And how is this piece of paper better than the 20 or more assurances of of security guarantees that we've already provided, uh, which had no effect on their nuclear program? And, And the South Korean officials have no response. So what I would say is not do an end of war declaration, but instead work as we were in the six party talks towards a peace treaty. But I think a peace treaty would have to include uh, force reductions, as we did in the conventional armed forces in Europe treaty.
0: But the uh, the six party talks are uh, well and truly dead. So, what kind of framework would uh, would those you know would moving towards a peace treaty be done?
1: Well, there may be a a series of different negotiations. Uh, I think a peace treaty. You know would would need four parties involved, uh, the two Koreas, the Ch- uh, China and the United States. Now whether it's a four party or a two plus two as the German unification was a two plus four uh, treaty uh, is kind of immaterial. But I, I think you'd certainly need the two Koreas. And until recently, North Korea rejected the idea that South Korea got a chair at the table. So I think that would be a four party. On the nuclear issue, right now we're doing bilateral. But in the past, when we did that in the agreed framework, South Korea complained that we were negotiating South Korean security above their head uh, and that they always felt suspicious of what the U.S. was agreeing to. So I think whether we resurrect the six-party talks or not, I think we we need to multilateralize the nuclear negotiations in some way. Because by doing it bilaterally, it, it sort of plays to the North Korean depiction that The nuclear issue is just a bilateral issue. It's North Korea has done nuclear programs only in response to the U.S. behavior, when in fact it's North Korea is, you know, in violation of international resolutions. So it's not North Korea versus the United States. It's North Korea versus the world. So I think there needs to be some kind of multilateral aspect because different neighbors of North Korea have different issues that they want addressed. Whether it's the six-party talks or not, I think we do at some point need to make some kind of multilateral negotiations.
0: How do you compare the U.S.'s approach to Iran uh, and its nuclear or a putative nuclear program and uh, North Korea.
1: Well, the short answer is Iran's out of my area, so I... I yes, so but, I, but I, the
0: wording is, I mean, just the last week or two, it's been a lot harsher, hasn't it? In, like we were just talking about uh, uh, the uh, short-range ballistic missiles that North Korea released last weekend, and the response has been quite muted, as you point out, because hierarchically it, there's right. never been a big deal made of short-range stuff. But Iran has to barely lift a finger, and it becomes... Uh, you know uh, yelled at it it's amazing the difference
1: well and my my colleagues at heritage who work the middle east have been very critical of, of the administration or I'm sorry very critical of the JCPOA so i'll let their their writing sort of stand on on their own you know but when you sort of look at the two you, people have said and i think with some degree of, of accuracy is if the us is willing to pull out of the INF treaty and the JCPOA how can north korea mm. feel assured that either the current president or a subsequent president, wouldn't pull out of you know that agreement. So I think what that shows is the need to have a, a carefully crafted agreement. And, and as the administration has said, the, the North Korean agreement perhaps should get ratified by Congress, because then it's really harder to undo than an executive agreement. So back in 94 with the agreed framework. Some said that should have been ratified by Congress. The Trump administration has been critical of the JCPOA for it not going through Congress. So, you know, one thing that we can take from the the administration's actions on the JCPOA is that it would likely push for a Korean agreement to go through Congress.
0: Some other uh, non-American voices might argue that the JCPOA is a uh, testimony to the need to have a multilateral agreement with North Korea, so that even if the U.S. becomes angry and walks away from it, that there are other parties to keep it going?
1: Well, I, I think going back to my earlier point of uh, because the international community has directed that North Korea has to abandon its nuclear and missile and BCW programs, I, I think we need to get the the international community involved in mm-hmm. negotiations with North Korea. And, and again, a you know whatever format that is re- resurrecting the six party talks or you know consultations I, i'm i'm not sure of, of the the format but i think we need to make clear that it's not the north korean paradigm of just it's a us north korea problem uh, any final remarks or comments from you well i i think uh you know i i always enjoy being in south korea i've i've been working this issue for 26 years so you know, for a lot of the Korea watchers in Washington, particularly those of us who worked it so long, you know, it, it's not just an analytic exercise. It's not just a matter of the head. It's a matter of the heart. Uh, we all have a lot of, of very close South Korean friends. We travel here frequently. Uh, it's really become a part of us so that we we get pretty passionate about mm-hmm. the U.S.-South Korean relationship. We get pretty passionate about Uh, the way the regime is treating the people in North Korea. So, uh, you know, it's something that if we do get passionate about it and argue about it, it's a lot of it is from the heart as well as the head. So I think all of us hope that in our lifetime or in the near future that we'll be able to you know walk the length and breadth of a unified Korea. But, uh, you know, in the meantime, we need to not lower the shield that has been protecting South Korea for decades.
0: That's a, a great way to end this. Thank you very much for your time today, Bruce Klinger, and thank you for joining us on the podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I look forward to the next time.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, don't forget to please subscribe to our podcast. Share this with your friends and family if you like it, and uh, consider buying a subscription to nknews.org. You can get a $50 discount off your subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout and one lucky listener per week will be chosen for a free annual subscription if you i should say a free one-year subscription uh, if you review this on itunes or elsewhere thanks and listen again next time